0: If you don't know her name yet, you surely will soon. Teenager Greta Thunberg is becoming known across the globe for her climate change activism.
1: For more than 30 years, the science has been crystal clear. How dare you continue to look away and come here saying that you're doing enough when the politics and solutions needed are still nowhere in sight? You say you hear us and that you understand the urgency. But no matter how sad and angry I am, I do not want to believe that. Because if you really understood the situation and still kept on failing to act, then you would be evil and that I refuse to believe. Ms.
0: Thunberg says the science is clear. So she and others of her generation are stepping up to be active critics. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell,
2: and today on the show, how science education makes better citizens. Science education is so important to us as citizens because science is about asking questions. Later, building a community seed library.
3: And um, we had someone bring in some pawpaw seeds, for instance, this, you know, beautiful and delicious Um, kind of tropical-like fruit that kind of tastes like a cross between a kiwi and a banana.
0: But first in 2011 a massive earthquake hit Japan. It was the biggest in the country's history and it caused all sorts of unexpected consequences including the migration of tiny creatures called nematodes. Ashley Smythe is a biologist at Virginia Military Institute And she's been taking a closer look at the nematodes that traveled across the ocean from Japan after the earthquake.
4: The tsunami that it generated seems to be the biggest that's ever been recorded and certainly the biggest to really impact an entire other continent, basically, right? You know, the the wave actually went all the way across the Pacific. And then for years after, we're still seeing debris that came from the coast. So this isn't a
0: regular thing. We don't have earthquakes that strike Japan or other nearby countries that then
4: send tsunamis our way and bring us debris? Right. This is not a normal thing. Yeah, this was a really unusual event.
0: I know you were looking at the tiny worms in the debris, <laughs> yes. but what was some of the most remarkable stuff that people recorded actually made it all the way oh, here? Oh, yeah.
4: I like the motorcycle a lot. That's oh, one of my favorites. Oh, really, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, really? That, that just survived and floated and lands on our shore. Great. And a giant dock, like... You know, Mac truck-sized dock, basically, like giant dock, like house-sized dock. I mean, that's amazing. All the way to little tiny little baskets and like a soccer ball. I mean, just amazing giant and little stuff. So the tsunami
0: was in 2011. And then for years, maybe four or five years afterward, mm-hmm. debris was washing up on the West Coast. When did you perk up?
4: Yeah, I I got connected to it about three years ago. When a colleague of mine he said, you know, I've been, been collecting this debris up in the north and I've been had this army of students taking all the animals and, you know, stuff growing on the debris. Now that I think about it, we've got a lot of nematodes. You want to look at those? And I was like, oh yeah, that sounds pretty interesting. So yeah, so it was about three years ago when I got contacted by Jim Carlton at, at Williams College. Can I send you a bunch of nematodes? And I thought, okay. Sounds huh. fun. And what are nematodes? So nematodes are worms. And uh, they're, so they're unsegmented worms, so that distinguishes them from annelid worms, so things like earthworms. Most people are probably familiar with parasitic nematodes, so things like heartworm that their dogs might get or pinworms that lots of kids can get. Um, so people are usually familiar with the parasitic ones, but actually most nematodes are not parasitic at all. They're just free living sort of out in the world.
0: And where do they mostly live?
4: Well, actually, the most of them live in the marine environment. So they're pretty much in every type of sediment and soil, and sand, everywhere in the world. So the lawn right outside your door will have lots of nematodes. Rainforests, deserts, every kind of soil and every kind of sediment in every kind of aquatic system. So sand and mud and coral reefs. And, you know, so they're pretty much everywhere. But the marine environment has kind of the most of them, kind of like the heartland of nematode diversity. There's just tons of species there most of which are undescribed species, actually. So it's kind of this crazy amount of diversity waiting to be discovered out there.
0: So when I saw a picture of one, it looked like the mouth and jaw <laughs> of that gross monster in Stranger Things called the Mind Flare. Oh,
4: yes. It kind of does look like that. i never really realized that. But, uh, yeah, it kind of does look like that. But they're very small and sweet, so, you know, they're not nothing to, be, to fear, really. But although the, some of the parasitic nematodes have some pretty... Vicious mouths, so like hookworms are live in intestines and they do feed on blood and they have a mouth that's got some pretty impressive teeth. So they will latch onto the intestine and and feed on the blood. And then unfortunately they they tend to move a lot and leave sort of bleeding lesions in the intestine. So people even lose more blood than the nematodes are taking. So they're, you know, they're kind of evil, wasteful blood feeders. So yeah, sometimes the big teeth are put to ill use. (laughs) But for my guys, for the marine free living guys, they're generally pretty sweet and will feed on algae or bacteria or other nematodes.
0: Did you find any crazy undiscovered nematodes in your pile?
4: I think I have mostly undescribed species. Yeah, I know we're kind of weird with nematodes. We get excited when we find a known species because most of what we find are undescribed. So we get kind of excited when we're like, oh, this is the species that so-and-so described. Because most of, our nematode, most of the nematodes that we encounter, they're new to science. They're undescribed. So at this point, I've got about 22 species that I've been able to identify. But of my 22, I'm pretty confident that three or four maybe are described. So they're sort of documented and known to science already. And the rest of them, I think, are going to be new species. <laughs> and so what will we learn from this? What might you glean? Well, so... The most interesting thing, at least in the big picture, sort of initially, is we now know that nematodes can do this. You know, it's never been documented, even nematodes really rafting short distances. And then I was surprised that I've got as much diversity as I do. So I thought, oh, yeah, maybe just a few species could survive that, right? So I thought, oh, it'll be a couple species, and they'll be closely related, right? It'll be all one little group, right? No, it's wildly diverse.
0: So do we feel welcoming toward these nematodes, (laughs) or are they scary invasive species? That's
4: a great question. We generally don't think of nematodes as invasive species in the sort of like troublesome sort, you know, the way... You know, other things that might be transported around through marine, you know, through shipping and things and can cause a lot of problems for aquaculture or just, you know, shipping ports and things like that. We don't think of nematodes as invasive in that sense. So they're probably not a problem. But Um, You know, I'm okay with it being, you know, a little bit of a question, because that's actually led to some interesting, you know, it's sort of part of what this has inspired this project is looking for invasive species. And the nematodes have been able to kind of tag along with that. So they're probably not a problem. So yes, we should probably welcome them to our shores, it'd probably be okay. But it's an interesting thing to explore.
0: Do we need nematodes? do they do they serve an important function in the food
4: chain? Sure, yeah, absolutely. when they're when they're down in the sediment, they're an important food source for all sorts of deposit feeding creatures. So there's lots of bigger worms and arthropods, you know crustaceans and things that sort of sift through the sand to feed and they're chowing up a lot of nematodes there. So yeah, they're a really important sort of base of the food chain in the marine environment for sure.
0: I can't help but think about how we've imagined populations were able to sort of span the globe and how they got here and whether early ancient populations sailed or some other means. Does it make you think beyond nematodes and think about sort of life formations?
4: Oh, yeah. I mean, that's it, it is amazing to think about how marine life moves around the world, you know, especially life that, you know, sort of specializes on in coastal habitats. Well, how did they get to another coast really far away? You know, how does that movement happen? And and how much have we as humans done to move things around? And how much is just rafted around, you know, on sort of natural debris? And yeah, definitely, it makes you think about just humanity moving around the world. And are we bringing all sorts of, you know, cool creatures with us?
0: Ashley Smyth, thank you for sharing your insights on With Good Reason.
4: Thanks so much for having me and letting me talk about my favorite uh, creatures and nematodes.
0: Ashley Smythe is a biology professor at Virginia Military Institute. There's a lot to learn in science class the periodic table, the stages of a butterfly, but also how to be an American citizen. Alex Fink is a professor of biology at Longwood University, and she says learning science is about learning how to
2: participate in our democracy. Science education is so important to us as citizens because science is about asking questions. Science is about gathering information. And then science is about making some decisions or drawing some conclusions based on the information that we collect. And so it's very much something that we do all the time in our lives. Those processes transfer to all kinds of decisions. If we're going to buy a house, we are going to collect some information. We're going to figure out where we can get a loan. We're going to make some decisions based on that, and then we're going to move forward. And science education is, is a set of skills, a set of process skills that we can use then to make important decisions in our lives.
0: So whether we go into science or not, what are ways in which we encounter science in our everyday lives?
2: I think we are bombarded every day with science news. And so, for example... uh we, we know there have been a number of big climate strikes in the country recently. And so, uh, so understanding climate change, the news story just a few days ago about whether or not the Naval Academy in Annapolis might need to be relocated because of sea level rise. That's a science news story, right? Um, whether or not screen time impacts the development of little t- children the latest headline about supplements or medication or those are all basically science stories and um, and I hope that more and more young people will feel prepared to digest and unpack those stories regardless of the path that they've chosen in life.
0: So in addition to making sure that the average citizen knows something about science and the scientific method, what are ways in which people go on to make more impactful decisions as members of society using their science-based knowledge?
2: So I, was, I, I had a conversation just a few days ago with a young family um, in Brazil, and they're, they're musicians they so that both parents are musicians and the children are aspiring musicians and they were talking to me about attending their local climate strike and they were four of about eight people on the, on the steps of the of the building where the strike was held but these these musicians these teachers are passionate about the future of their community and how they see a changing climate impacting that and so Folks from all walks of life can collect information and make decisions if they have a bit of confidence in how science works and how they can make those decisions.
0: Do you ever find some of your students have an aha moment when it comes to science that maybe they're just taking the general course requirement, don't consider themselves super into it? And then become excited or make a connection.
2: Absolutely. And I think that happens most often when it is something like, oh, I never thought about the fact that cell biology can help me understand my mother's breast cancer struggle. Or, oh my gosh, I never thought about the fact that oyster populations in the Chesapeake Bay have this big impact on water quality. And my, you know, my uncle is a waterman. If we help them to make those connections to things in our communities and in our you know in our lives, then yes, they do have those aha moments.
0: Do you think that when people leave high school and college that they retain any of the science they had as sort of a general
2: <laughs> course requirement? Well um so I would hope so, yes. But The fact is that there's a lot of research that tells us that most of the content will not be retained. And, you know, we, you and I each have a computer in our pocket all the time. And so if we need to know the stages of mitosis, we can look that up, right? So am I concerned if a student doesn't remember the stages of mitosis? Absolutely not. But what I hope they retain is a curiosity, an interest. And, and I really hope, that all of my students retain a knowledge and understanding that science does connect to key issues in our lives. And if they remember that, they then, I think, will feel maybe not more confident, but certainly less intimidated when they encounter a science issue. And they'll say, OK, I can do this. I, I, can, I can manage this. I can learn more about this issue that's related to science because I remember when my teammates and I tackled this climate change question or the oyster question or something else in class. So class is a laboratory, and not just for cookbook science experiments, but for practicing skills of questioning, of data collecting, and of drawing conclusions. And that's what transfers to life later on. And mitosis, you know, you can look it up on your cell phone.
0: I remember in senior biology in high school, The teacher was a quirky, delightful, smart woman who was thrilled that I had done an essay on the life of a drop of blood going through the human circulatory Mm -hmm. system. She was so amused by my language, which was very um, (laughs) sci-fi. And her appreciation for my playfulness with that was really thrilling to me. And I thought, really, is that allowed? I mean, is that something you're welcoming?
2: Right. Absolutely. And that kind of creativity and that what we would now call interdisciplinarity, right? right. <laughs> of that of your approach should absolutely be part of science, especially when we're talking about students who are taking a terminal science course in college. Many students who aren't science majors take one science course, right, to fulfill a requirement. That puts so much weight then on that science experience because from that point on, 95% of the science information that we learn is in in an informal environment, like at the science museum or with a naturalist at a state park or something like that. It's the last really formal experience we have with science education, so it better be really good. So what do we
0: need for science education at the middle school, high school, college level? What do we not have now or what are we not placing sufficient value on?
2: Opportunities for students to be creative and for students to to make connections to things in our lives. True, but why is
0: that happening? And why aren't they well, electrified in the
2: classroom? Yeah. So I think it's messy, right? I think I saw a story just recently about Teachers in our region not being able to take students out on field trips because of budgetary issues in the school districts. Students not being able to have those experiences in nature. I also worry that one of the reasons why students sit and listen and write things down is because the teacher has that level of confidence with the material. Novice teachers oftentimes convey things in a very clear and straightforward and linear way, right? And one of the exciting things that happens when you open the door for students to be creative and to have their own investigations is you as the teacher don't know where it's going. And that can be very unsettling, right, to lose that control, to lose that kind of authority, and maybe for things to move beyond your comfort zone in terms of content knowledge, but that's exactly where we need students to go. We need them to realize that they that they can use this information in interesting ways. And so I think I th- I think one of the challenges we face is the obvious budget issue, but another is teacher confidence with teaching science and teaching science in a way that is a much more unscripted and much less linear. Alex Fink, thank you for talking with me and with good reason. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure to be here.
0: Alex Fink is the Wilma Register Sharp and Mark Boyd Sharp, Dean of the Honors College for Citizen Scholars and a professor of biology at Longwood University. region is home to some of the greatest biodiversity in the country. My next guest has spent his career and really his life embracing that biodiversity. Ben Castile is a horticulturalist and instructor at Virginia Highlands Community College. Ben, you actually grew up in Appalachia where you teach now. What was it like growing up there?
3: It's an interesting question. Um, I actually grew up in the suburbs of Appalachia kind of right on the border of Tennessee and my experience there was kind of watching as the pastures there turned into pavement as they began to develop this area right off of the interstate corridor. I think watching that kind of drove me to go more towards the natural world. I think from the get-go I was really interested in um, gardening growing plants that you could eat and that was developed with um, my grandmother and my mother who grew gardens in our backyard. I really enjoyed, you know, all kinds of plant life. I mean, anything that flowered I was interested in and um, watching the relationships of insects and plants. And it really just got my young mind and grabbed it at attention. And actually later on when I was in high school, I picked up a book in the uh, library called The Secret Life of Plants. And uh, this book really inspired me. Um, At the time, I was really interested in computer programming, (laughs) but it kind of made me do like a little 180 and switch to the plant world. In particular, a couple of things in that book uh, about Luther Burbank, who they called the wizard of horticulture. He bred more plants than any person that we know of. Um, He basically you know, looked at plants and having a conversation, a dialogue with the plants. So he was able to breed such things as spineless cacti and thornless blackberries. He even bred a, a white blackberry. And just that you could do this just really amazed me.
0: Yeah. Did you try to breed anything yourself?
3: Oh, absolutely. I, I still have some um, breeding projects going on. Tell me about them. Really interested in breeding um, wild edible plants. Um, and part of that is just selecting those plants and seeing that natural biodiversity that we have, um, especially here in Appalachia that is so rich, um, but trying to find these plants that are edible and have been used by like Native Americans and trying to bring them into uh, cultivation in you know, the modern day and age. Um, one plant being uh, greenbrier, which most people think of as a weed um but it produces these really delicious um shoots coming up from this vine and when they're young they're nice and tender and not thorny um and the cool thing about it is once you cut that shoot once you harvest it it just grows two more so it's it's kind of like a, an asparagus almost but
0: yeah it sounds like it
3: a little little easier to grow i think um and it also has an edible root that can uh you can actually put it through this cold water washing process and get out this red powder that can be used as a uh, vegetable gelatin substitute.
0: What else did you sort of explore in high school or find interesting breeding or foraging for edibles?
3: Well, I've always had this interest in things that I could eat. Um, And, you know, I think that comes from just playing outside all the time as a kid and <laughs> you looking at this plant and saying, Hey, this is a red berry. Can I eat this? Yeah. Is it going to be sweet? And just wondering what it was going to be like. And I still do that today. Still just will will find a, maybe a new plant and say, Hey, I wonder what this is. Um, is it edible? Can I, <laughs> can I look at the other sensory details of, of the plant, how it feels, how it smells. And um, if I be so bold, how does it taste?
0: When I was young, I would go in the woods and pull up sassafras to chew on the roots of that, which was so spicy and savory.
3: Oh, yeah. I love sassafras and love the tender leaves, too. Um, That's a good one because they actually, you know, use it in Creole cooking. Um, They dry and crush the uh, leaves and use it as a soup thickener. Um, I didn't know that. Also called filet gumbo.
0: Ha. A few years ago, you helped to set up a Seed Savers Library in your local library. What's the purpose of that?
3: Well, Washington County Public Library uh, approached me in, with this interest of starting this Seed Savers Library. And at the time, I was uh, running my own business called Appalachian Wildside, where our motto was preserving biodiversity um, one backyard at a time. And huh. Really, this whole biodiversity thing um, is very significant in Appalachia because we have some of the highest natural biodiversity on the planet um, in our backyard here in these wild places, but we also have the highest agricultural biodiversity or some of the highest in the world. And um, I think that the, the Seed Savers Library is potentially a way to preserve that. One, by training people how to save seed and then having a place where they could come and check out seed and then return some at the end of the season. And it's actually been a very successful program. We have people coming in and and bringing in old heirloom varieties of particular types of crops all the time.
0: Name some of them that people have really treasured that you've become passionate about.
3: Oh, one of the big ones is beans. So things like a pink tip, um, runner, half runner beans, greasy beans, and um, there's this whole lexicon of uh, bean terminology that I find really fascinating, and um, people really get uh, excited about it, bringing in their October beans at the end of the season to, to share with others in the future. I mean, there's so many other crops, too. I mean, people bring in kind of your more traditional kind of backyard gardening stuff like corn as well, squash seeds, and even sometimes wild plants. Um, we had someone bring in some pawpaw seeds, for instance, this, you know, beautiful and delicious um, kind of tropical-like fruit that kind of tastes like a cross between a kiwi and a banana but grows native um, on the waterways of Appalachia, and is actually North America's largest fruit.
0: When did you decide to hike the Appalachian Trail? You probably hiked it a lot, but then you decided to go longer?
3: Yeah, I was um, actually in high school, and some friends and I kind of, you know, said that we were together, and when we graduated, we were gonna go hike the Appalachian Trail. And I was really inspired by my grandmother, who, in her 50s, decided to hike the Appalachian Trail. And um, she was kind of doing it in sections. Um, But she ended up making it almost halfway, actually a little bit further than halfway on the trail um, to Delaware Water Gap on the border of Pennsylvania and New Jersey. And unfortunately, she wasn't able to go back and finish the trail um, because of some family issues that came up. So I always had this thought in the back of my mind that I would, finish it for her and so I did Um, and you know she was alive when I finished the trail she was very proud she actually would send me money um, (laughs) along the way just to make sure that I I made it the whole way and um, this kind of came full circle just a few years ago when my grandmother passed away we went back and uh, took her ashes up to Maine and uh, spread them on the winds just as she had kind of thought that she would, you know, be there one day and wanted to take her there.
0: Ben Castile is an instructor and program coordinator of horticulture at Virginia Highlands Community College. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. I'm Sarah McConnell. The following is an encore presentation from 2016. Heralded as a success story, Botswana turned its thriving wildlife population into a major draw for tourists. And yet while the tourism industry depends on wildlife like elephants and lions, those same animals can cause problems for the very poor. My next guest is Kathleen Alexander. She's a professor of fish and wildlife conservation at Virginia Tech, and she's worked in Botswana for decades. Kathleen, you work in Botswana where big wild animals like elephants and lions still roam in a way that America no longer has such large populations. How fun.
5: It's amazing. Sometimes you're reminded what it must have been like to be this human without any protection when you walk, let's say, across the road in the town that I work in, where you might run into an elephant, and it may be an outcome that would be something you really might not be too keen on. It's a a different world.
0: I've read that there are more wild animals than people in Botswana. I mean, by far more.
5: Well, it's crazy, and it's, it's, it's amazing. You're going to the store to buy your coffee and bread, and you have to park your car and make sure you don't hit the warthogs.
0: <laughs> I feel like I wish I had that problem.
5: <laughs> oh, I know. It brings you right into touch with this amazing juxtaposition and richness of, of humans and animals and these landscapes where there is coexistence and overlap. And, and sometimes, you know, it just works wonderfully.
0: The center that you created just outside the wildlife park, the Chobe National Park in Botswana, is primarily to care for the animals or to protect the people from the animals? Well, I think it's
5: both. It's How do you actually provide assistance so humans and animals in the environment move forward in a way that is possible given all the constraints and challenges for everything from abject poverty and health issues that challenge human communities to droughts and lack of food and water for animals and wildlife. So there's lots of priorities and sometimes they're in contrast.
0: Well, tell me how much of Botswana is taken up by the wildlife refuge areas and what the human populations are subsisting on.
5: Well, nearly half of the country is designated as a protected area. Now this is important because wildlife and tourism is identified as a huge opportunity to bring money in. Agriculture is not going to be as strong and has in fact lost traction because there's just not that much water.
0: How do many of the people you know in Botswana view this state of living where animals can roam free in these preserves while they go about their normal lives?
5: Well, the issue is that the animals don't stay in the preserves. They right. leave and they live around these people. And and in some respects there's communities that say, why does government and other people, why do they love animals more than us? And then there's others who were you know, who rightfully recognize the incredible conservation success story Botswana represents. So it's a ticklish situation for government leaders trying to find a balance between again, sometimes very opposing needs.
0: What are you seeing in terms of the economy in Botswana? Is it all related to wildlife tourism from outside the country?
5: Well, there's a big thrust there, and of course there's the diamonds, and that's been the problem though. It's very hard to bring all of those economic opportunities down to the household level of a rural community or the woman living alone with her five children who may be suffering from HIV. What exactly would she do to grab part of that economic opportunity. And so unemployment remains high despite this amazing effort of government to pull people forward. Um, It's it's a difficult situation when your options are restricted.
0: Well, who does make money off the ecotourism? Are they outsiders who've come in and established these, you know, safari centers? Well, I would say to
5: a large extent, yes. And I think the government's working really hard at, at, at... framing an environment where partnerships between communities and business sector and and bringing in citizens of Botswana into those industries is achieved. But that's a process and a pathway. And when you're trying to develop capacity, that can be very challenging. And then you have the issue where people worry about HIV. That's the reality of working in a place like Botswana, where you're struggling with this terrible disease that's affecting the very fabric of life.
0: And are they seeing a lot of new HIV cases
5: there? Oh, it was every day. I mean, who is no longer there anymore? Now, government has taken a bold step, followed by most of the continent, in, in providing, free of charge, all of the um, ARVs to help protect people. That is drugs that help fight the virus and keep a person healthy and living and it's an expensive enterprise, but it was necessary. They were going to lose most of their population. And so that bold move has secured a future, but it's not going to go away. And, in fact, HIV really is still a problem globally, yet the conversation is something we don't really have so much in America anymore, I think largely because we're uncomfortable with the fear of of disease. I mean, it's something that's always on our horizon and, and frightens folks.
0: Have you lost friends in Botswana to HIV?
5: Absolutely. I must say that there was probably a decade and a half that every woman that worked with us in the household eventually died of HIV. It changes you to see that people are holding on and their families have become so resigned to losing people because it's just what happens to you here. People lose people and there are these just clusters, remnants of families left because of the impact, ravaging impact of HIV.
0: One of the things you're in a unique position to see are diseases that flow between people and wild animals or people and these animals in the preserves. Ebola is such a disease, yes? How hard hit was Botswana by Ebola?
5: Well, now that's the odd thing because there was no Ebola in Southern Africa. But the fear of Ebola changed people's interest in traveling, made people frightful, and and then it had its own consequence. So it's these knock-on consequences of emerging infectious disease and the globalization of our population that really tells the story that is far more than the tragedy of loss of human life at the site, but the ripple effects through our globalized communities.
0: In all honesty, did you go through Ebola fears when you were coming and going during the Ebola outbreak?
5: No, not to Southern Africa, but I did want to go and help in in West Africa. But, you know, even helping in West Africa might have prohibited some of my movement in Southern Africa. So you have to make decisions. You know, if I go there, maybe they won't let me come back in.
0: It's so interesting that you are a veterinarian working with the large animals with this vast center doing great things. And yet so much of your time and attention is being given toward the people who live there.
5: And I think that's what's exciting is that, you realize that these complex problems can't be parsed out by one set of animals or one community, that there's this conglomerate of influences and agents and participants that create a problem. And it's that complex problem and all its constituents that we have to pursue. So understanding why a woman would not be able to hear from her son if he has diarrhea, and looking at the national diarrheal data and asking questions about water and pathogens they're all linked. And without including all of that, I don't think we can ever get to addressing these problems that have remained persistent. Diarrhea, it's a global problem. It kills children. We had 500 children die in 2006 in part of Botswana. If that happened here, people wouldn't know what to say. And yet, we still can't stop it. And it's an easy problem, really. People should just boil their water. But it isn't easy, and it doesn't go away.
0: And why can't people just boil their water?
5: I think it again speaks to that the importance of understanding the cultural context. What sorts of decisions are you making? If nobody in your family thinks you should do it or it's worth it, you won't. Or maybe you think, hey, getting sick, it's just what happens, there's no point. And it's those complexities of human belief systems that really drive what people will do or what they won't do and what interventions are possible. So we might, in all of our smartness and intellect and institutions, generate great ideas and interventions. But if I can't get Mama umpo to say to me, oh, I understand that. I can use that with my children. Let me go and tell my uncle and my father. She's not going to do it. So you're back to square 1 and spin in your wheels.
0: What do you wish the public understood better about what you see in Botswana?
5: I think it is is that one everybody's struggling with all the complexities of their own world and some more than others so we might be cross because you know our cable uh connection went off and we had to wait for the cable guy and then there's somebody's hoping their child can get to school and has shoes and won't be killed by an elephant you have to know and understand the problems of from the perspective of the people who own them only then can you help them develop solutions that work for them. So rushing in and telling people what to do has failed at the very start. But engaging people to say, tell me about your problem. Let me help you figure out what you would like to do about it from an evidence-based perspective.
0: I really admire some of the things that you've done. You've You've created a craft center where some of the poorest local women can come and make things that they can sell to the tourism trade also hired some local young people there to serve as field guides. These are all terrific steps.
5: Well, and I think I'm really excited as well. We've had some NSF support to bring young African-American or black students to work with minority tribal groups there as well as high school students to start saying, you know what, we need a different tomorrow. We need an improved tomorrow. We need leaders that are from different minority groups, both tribal and racial. We need to empower people to overcome poverty and we need to be creative. And you know what, even though if you're a scientist or whoever you are, you need to put your foot in the water and just say, okay, What can we do and get going? That craft center is amazing. Those women who have no opportunity because they're older and they have lots of children and they're not going to be owning a hotel, how do you help them? And how do you not just sit there and monitor the demise of the world? You have to do something. So I hope we're making our little impact. I think you are because every day I get in my car and you remind me about something I've never thought about and (laughs) something maybe I need to do differently.
0: (laughs) Well, Kathleen Alexander, thank you so much. I really appreciate this.
5: You're very welcome.
0: Kathleen Alexander is a professor of fish and wildlife conservation at Virginia Tech. Coming up next, could gene editing solve mosquito-borne diseases? Media attention has turned away from it, but the Zika virus is still dangerous. If you visit the CDC website, their recommendation for avoiding Zika is to avoid mosquito bites. They suggest wearing bug spray or long sleeves and pants. But what if we could control Zika by simply eliminating the mosquitoes who bite? My next guest is Jake Tu. He's a professor of biochemistry at Virginia Tech. He's fighting the Zika epidemic with a gene editing technique that cuts down on female mosquitoes.
1: Because uh, for mosquitoes, um, only females bite us and only females transmit diseases. Males don't bite, and so they are harmless in that aspect.
0: I've heard that the females are called vampires and the males vegetarians.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. I like to say that, yeah.
0: (laughs) Why do the females bite?
1: So they need the nutrients from our blood to nourish their eggs, and they like to bite humans. They have uh, receptors for different kinds of odors. They also have ways to detect CO2 and heat, and uh, they're able to zoom in on a potential victim.
0: Roughly how many species of mosquitoes are there, and how many of those can give us Zika?
1: Right. So there are more than 3,000 species of mosquitoes. Uh, I work on Aedes aegypti, which is the primary vector for dengue, chikungunya, Zika, yellow fever, and those viruses.
0: So what you are trying to do is edit the gene of the mosquito, so that we produce fewer females.
1: So mosquitoes are like us, and uh, we have sex chromosomes, XY chromosomes, and the boys have the Y chromosome. And so on the Y chromosome, you have a gene that makes the boys boys. And mosquitoes are similar in that way. Mosquitoes have a gene uh, on a place that only is passed on to the boys, that makes boy mosquitoes uh, boys. We call this gene NYX. What we're trying to do is to put this NYX gene onto not the X chromosome, but a different chromosome that can be passed on to both boys and girls. So now the girls would take on the boy feature and they don't bite. So now we have a way to bias the sex ratio. So now you have less girl mosquitoes and so you have less mosquitoes that bite us, and also we have less mosquitoes that makes more baby mosquitoes.
0: Are you producing generations of females that don't bite, or are you producing just simply all generations of males, with none of which bite?
1: We we're producing uh, generations that are all males. So regardless whether genetically you're a male or not, phenotypically you're a male.
0: And so the plan is to have males impregnate females and produce a generation of all males and no females?
1: So if you are able to do what we just described, right, so if you are able to make a mosquito that carries this extra copy of Nix, the male that carries this extra copy of Nix mate with wild type female, and all of the progeny uh, are males, right, if you release enough of these males into the wild, they'll be mating with the females, and you're producing all males, and those males now would act as your biological control agent, right? So they'll be finding other females to mate, and then they'll, they'll be making more males only. right? So this process can be amplified over generations, and so potentially you could reduce the population of the Aedes aegypti uh, in your locality. So it's quite efficient, potentially.
0: How long would you estimate it would take for a mosquito population to collapse? Through this technique of male editing,
1: uh, it depends on uh, how many Aedes aegypti you have in your locality, right? So, what's the density population to start with, and how much you can, uh, how many of these mosquitoes you can release, how often you release, and how efficient these mosquitoes are at finding these wild-type females. So, it really um, uh, depends on those parameters, but. Um, if you release sufficiently amount of um, uh, uh, males compared to the wild type males, potentially it takes you know, dozens of generations uh, that you could really have a huge dent on the uh, mosquito population.
0: How many generations typically of a mosquito in a single year?
1: It takes about two or three weeks for a mosquito to go through its life cycle. You go from egg to the next generation of eggs it takes about two to three weeks, but a, an adult mosquito can l- live longer than that. They can still lay more eggs, right? So you can basically calculate it. It really depends on how, what, what the temperatures are in, in your locality and things like that.
0: Huh. So a single female can have how many blood meals?
1: It can have uh, a few at least. Uh, so this is actually pretty interesting, right? So in, uh, f- when the female emerged, becoming adults, right, and after a few days, they're ready to take a blood meal. After that, um, they would develop eggs and lay eggs. After that, these eggs are laid, and they are ready, a few days later, they're ready to take the second blood meal, right? and then so on. So for a mosquito to transmit viruses, the pathogens, to us, they have to take at least two blood meals. The first blood meal has to be from an infected person or infected vertebrate animal. Right, so those viruses then would replicate in a mosquito for a week or two, and then this mosquito is ready to bite another person and transmit these viruses to the next person. Really, the, the mosquitoes that cause problems to us are the female mosquitoes that live long enough to have two uh, blood meals.
0: Hmm. Once you have gotten to the point in your work where you can test these genetically modified mosquitoes in the field, what sort of place would you be looking to release the male-edited mosquitoes? How about an island?
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. The steps could be: we develop the strain in the lab, and we we'll test whether they're working in the lab first. And then um, there are facilities, what we call semi-field facilities, and so they are contained and confinement facilities, but they have. You know you can have trees in there. You can have you know it's basically mimic um, what's outside. And so you can do experiments there and see you know how things work. And then potentially the next step would be finding some uh, island of sort of you have your natural containment. and so and so that's probably another step forward um, after you have your semi-field experiments.
0: Where do you think this would fit into the panoply of tools we may have to fight the Zika virus and mosquitoes? We have protecting ourselves. We have trying to eliminate whole mosquito populations by reducing the breeding grounds. We've got truck spraying. Where would male gene editing fit in?
1: Right. So even though this potentially is a very powerful and efficient way of controlling mosquito population, and um, I don't think we should regard this as a silver bullet, these Newly developed method should be used in conjunction with existing tools. And so there's a term called integrated vector management, RV, IVM. And so it's basically you're trying to use as many different tools at your disposal or the, you know, the tools that are most effective or efficient for your particular situation. And I think that's the best way to go. I, I sometimes marvel at how this mosquito, this ADC aegypti. Adapt, how adaptive they are to humans and how they evolved a way to allow them to use um, the blood meal so efficiently, so, so uh, effectively. And uh, so there's a lot of uh, physiology to be learned, a lot of um, uh, evolutionary question to be asked and answered uh, by studying this particular species of mosquito. And we just have to realize that the important thing uh, as far as the human society is concerned, is to control diseases that caused or transmitted by these mosquitoes. Uh, I you know, don't have a particular interest in getting rid of uh, a particular species of mosquito.
0: Let me ask you one last question that all of us have thought at one time or another, as we've slapped at mosquitoes, What in the world are they good for? And I think, <laughs> I think we understand that there are vast populations throughout the ecosystems around the world Mm -hmm. that depend on mosquitoes as a food source. Have mosquitoes, do you think, also evolved to infect populations of animals to control them? They're part of the sort of the balance, not just as a food source for animals, but also to infect animals.
1: Right. So let me come back to this um, uh, point that... um, there are more than 3,000 species of mosquitoes, right? The majority right. Of, them, of them don't transmit pathogens that cause diseases to us, right? And so we're dealing with one particular species in this case, A.D.C. aegypti, And this particular species is adapted to humans. And so they like to bite us, and that's why they're causing problems to us, right? That's why so they're so good at causing problems to us. And the genetic method we discussed today uh, requires mating, right, so it's species-specific, right, because these uh, males would have to be mating with the females for it to exert its effect. We're only targeting this one particular species. And Aedes aegypti is an invasive species in the Americas, so it's not native here. It uh, migrated here most likely through uh, slave trades um, a couple hundred years ago from Africa, right. So. What we're talking about, at least in Americas, is to suppress a um, mosquito that is not native here, right? So we're suppressing a population of, of invasive species.
0: I'm all for this. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Jake, too. Thank you for sharing your insights with me on With Good Reason. Thank you. Jake Tu is a professor of biochemistry at Virginia Tech. This has been an encore presentation of With Good Reason from 2016. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz and Cass Adair. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. Some of the music from today's episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks this week to Rosa Bott at UVA Wise. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.